So the Atlanta Chiefs launched in 1967. It was the first professional soccer team in Atlanta. It was really all about introducing soccer into this part of the country. There hadn't been organized soccer in Atlanta since back in the 20s. I think the first Chiefs were integral in setting not just the environment in Atlanta, but the environment in the U.S. The excitement of it was just as much as the excitement of when the Braves won the World Series or when the Falcons go to the Super Bowl or when Georgia's in the national championship team. The, you know, the sense of excitement in the crowd was enormous. The first Atlanta Chiefs 68 championship team certainly paved the way for the later Atlanta Chiefs. They were hugely successful and I think from that point we had momentum. I think the foundation of what they have here today was was partly because of, of the clubs before. It's always smart to appreciate people who are pioneers in something and realize that uh, somebody had to start, you know, everything that turned out big. So it's really important to remember the Atlanta Chiefs because as successful as Atlanta United has been, it wasn't truly an overnight success because the Chiefs in the early days and in the second version as well planted so many seeds that are now at the right time to bloom. And I don't think Atlanta United would have had as much success as quickly if the Chiefs hadn't planted all of those seeds all that time ago. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, what is going on everybody? How you doing? It's uh, your pal Tim, Tim Hanlon that is, reporting for duty, yes, once again. We are here to delight you with more excursions into what used to be in professional sports. We like to call it good seats still available, and I uh, welcome you back to the fold. And uh, let's uh, get on with it, shall we? We're back into soccer, and uh, that clip tips it off. That's uh, from 2018, Atlanta United, uh, one of the most successful franchises uh, in Major League Soccer, uh, just right out of the gate and uh, continues to be so. Uh, regular sold-out crowds uh, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, 70-plus thousand fans. I mean, hard to believe. I think most people who have been followers of of soccer and sports in this country uh, would never have imagined just how out-of-the-box successful Atlanta United would be, a soccer team of all things, in the heart of the South, uh, especially given uh, a relatively... I wouldn't call it meager, but certainly underwhelming uh, existence in uh, the modern day pro games uh, early and often lean years. Uh, In particular, I mentioned a a team known as the Atlanta Chiefs, which uh, you soccer scholars out there certainly may remember, uh, were one of the first pro teams when uh, the uh, earliest of days of North American Soccer League uh, was created, uh, the, in, in particular, the United Soccer Association and the NPSL, the two leagues that sort of the, the predecessors of the late 1960s uh, NASL. The Atlanta Chiefs were in that mix. Phil Woosnam, uh, the uh, future uh, commissioner of the North American Soccer League, uh, came out of the Atlanta Chiefs organization and uh, stepped in, if you will, or stepped out of uh, the Chiefs organization to save the league and 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 ultimately become uh it's uh for a little while there at least uh, mammothly successful uh North American Soccer League as the 70s rolled on the chiefs uh kind of waned uh, in the middle of the decade and became the apollos and and 
and all kinds of other sort of stuff and then went away and it came back in a reincarnated format uh, in the latter part of the 70s and early 80s. Uh, you may remember uh, some of those uh, broadcasts all across the country on the superstation, Ted Turner's WTBS television. Uh, he owned that version of the Chiefs team, reincarnated it all with lots of the logo treatments from the early days, uh, sort of spiffed up from some for some more modern sort of looks. And, and, and boy, gorgeous uniforms, red, white, and blue with stripes across it. The uh, Chief iconography, uh, just, you know, classic uh, sort of look and feel for that. And why is that important? Well, in that clip, right, uh, 2018 was sort of a tribute from uh, Atlanta United uh, in his earliest days in the NASL, excuse me, in the in MLS, geez, hearkening uh, back to both versions of the Chiefs as fundamental, foundational, uh, seed sowing for uh, what is today inarguably uh, a, a, a dynamic success story uh, in the form of uh, the of the Atlanta United team that exists in Major League Soccer. Why is all that important? Well. I'm glad you asked, because our guest this week, Graham Tut, was part of and still is very much part of that soccer scene in the Georgia area. But it's a fascinating story of his that just happens to uh, cross into uh, the Atlanta Chiefs story. And that's our sort of little hook this week uh, as we get into uh, a conversation with uh, the wonderful Graham Tut. Um, if you're a, a longtime soccer fan, especially of the international game, you will know and perhaps recognize the name Graham Tut, a, a standout goalie in the English game during the 1970s with Charlton Athletic. And uh, sadly, you may remember a horrific uh, accident uh, incurred by uh, Mr. Tut uh, during one of uh, Charlton's games uh, where he essentially crashed into... Uh, basically a loss of sight uh, and uh, a, a, a serious injury to his eye in the, in the manner of gameplay. And it derailed his career. And frankly, uh, as you can imagine, uh, it derailed his psyche for, for some time as well. Um, but uh, in the indefatigable, I think that's the first time we've used that word on this show after some almost 230 episodes, indefatigable spirit that uh, essentially brought Graham back from the edge into the pro game. Uh, not in England. Uh, they pretty much uh, found him to be persona non grata for various uh, uh, reasons, which are sort of odd, I guess, in sort of today's uh, landscape. But as uh, Graham will explain in our conversation, a wonderful one at that, uh, the testimonial game was sort of uh, written up and and uh, executed. And, uh, and then away he went. Uh, there was the expectation that he would never truly play again. Well, he proved him wrong for sure. He went to South Africa of all places, became an all-star goalkeeper there for a couple of seasons back when it was uh, a very hairy time, apartheid and all, uh, and uh, a very uh, uh, sort of, uh, how, do I, how do I describe it? A very rough and tumble uh, emerging South African league. And, and I'll let him tell you some of the stories. Uh, but it's from there that uh, Grant Tut uh, ultimately made the jump into this uh, white-hot cosmic thing known as the North American Soccer League. Uh, but he didn't get there directly, but it was certainly the open gates, if you will, of America and American soccer. He saw a lot of his teammates uh, from both South Africa as well as uh, England uh, making their way to American shores uh, to play this suddenly bur burgeoning uh, professional game here. Yeah, the North American Soccer League being probably the uh, brightest and hottest wattage 
uh, but also this thing called the American Soccer League. And I'll let him explain all of it. But it's a fascinating tale of, of lots of different stops and a great excuse for us to knock off some of the teams uh, that we've had uh, very little to no uh, understanding of or exposure to. For example, the Columbus Magic of the American Soccer League. If you remember the ASL in some of our previous conversations, the ASL was uh, kind of trying to be, I guess in, in retrospect is now sort of considered to be a Division II uh, professional league uh, behind that of the then North American Soccer League. But the ASL, I think, and the owners thereof uh, and within probably fancied themselves as being maybe an alternative uh, top-tier league. I'm not sure how far uh, that vision sort of occurred, but it was uh, very, very much out there that the ASL, uh, after a very long and multi-decades-long history of being sort of a regional and ethnic kind of uh, heritage league, uh, was trying to kind of shake that off and become uh, somewhat of a similar or parallel success to that of its older brother, this somewhat newcomer of the North American Soccer League. Columbus Magic, if you remember, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, was uh, a, a, a harbinger, frankly, of what now became, uh, it was now arguably the Columbus Crew's success. Uh, I honestly don't know if the crew has done any throwbacks to the Columbus Magic, but uh, Franklin County Stadium, they shared it with the Columbus Clippers of uh, AAA baseball fame. Um, and that was uh, Graham's first entree uh, in 1980. That then led to the aforementioned Atlanta Chiefs, both indoor, where, as you know, in some previous conversations, you know, the Atlanta Chiefs actually outdrew their outdoor version. Uh, but that was uh, Graham's introduction to the Atlanta Chiefs, played a handful of games indoors uh, in the 1980 to 81 season, and then a full outdoor season in 81, the last, sadly, of the reincarnated Atlanta Chiefs. Um, and again, great, uh, great video out there from various uh, WTBS television broadcasts. Bob Neal uh, on the call uh, and our old pal Terry Hansen, uh, a previous podcast guest uh, doing the color commentary and uh, not sort of fully uh, said on broadcasts. He was the general manager of the team, so uh, I don't know how objective he was, but actually he was quite frighteningly objective, despite having, a, a shall we say, a vested interest. Uh, in the outcome. I think we all had a vested interest in the outcome because Turner Broadcasting owned, Turner owned it all. But um, alas, the, the Atlanta Chiefs uh, second version didn't uh, last. Uh, that didn't, of course, stop Graham Tutt from not only succeeding and doing well on the field and, and being a, a big part of the, the soccer scene in Georgia. He kind of set up roots there and stuck around for another uh, cup of coffee in the American Soccer League the following year, 1981, excuse me, 1982, the Georgia Generals. You remember them? We get into all of that stuff, as well as, if you can believe it, the founding of the indoor soccer team, the American Indoor Soccer Association, then becoming National Professional Soccer League team, known as the Atlanta Attack. If you remember them, they uh, spent a year or so in the Omni, trying to rekindle that sort of early indoor magic of the uh, Chiefs back in the beginning part of the decade. Uh, and then through various financial issues uh, of ownership, wound up going to Kansas City and uh, the Kansas City attack, winning a championship in the NPSL under Keith Tozer. Uh, they're a well-known name in indoor soccer circles. Yeah, he was the original coach of the of the uh, uh, Atlanta attack uh, before they moved to Kansas City and they won their first NPSL championship. All kinds of fun little stops and the uh, amazing comeback story, let's call it that, uh, with Graham Tutt 
he, the author of the upcoming book, uh, which uh, is a, is a tremendous read, especially its uh, third major section, which is devoted to all of these uh, American exploits. It's called Never Give Up, the Graham Buster Tut Story. Uh, it is co-written by his uh, colleague, Matt Easter Eastley. And um, uh, it's all a great conversation. All coming up for you momentarily, if you just stick around after this little brief promotional message. Who should we dial up this week? I don't know. Let's see. I'll uh, flip the cards around. I know. How about OldSchoolShirts.com? Yeah. Patrick Francois Wilson, a.k.a. P.F. Wilson and his pals in Cincinnati. OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, what a great site to uh, uh, gander at and buy some shirts from. Um, as you know, uh, OldSchoolShirts.com is just a, a, a ripe with... Uh, literally hundreds of different sort of shirt uh, dynamics and, and uh, examples uh, from all kinds of stops in pop culture, uh, radio stations, malls, restaurants, and of course, teams and leagues, especially those no longer with us, right down our avenue, shall we say, of interest. And we would not leave you hanging with an episode this week uh, that talks about stops at in Columbus, Ohio with the Columbus Magic. Yeah, there's a Columbus Magic shirt there for you. It's great. It's got the great gray color and the original Columbus Magic logo. How about the Atlanta Chiefs? There's uh, at least one shirt there with the uh, the Atlanta Chiefs logo on there. You can't uh, can't miss that at OldSchoolShirts.com. How about the Atlanta Attack, the uh, aforementioned indoor team of the late uh, 80s, early 90s that absconded for Kansas City and became the Kansas City Attack. Well, both versions of those shirts are available for you too, as well at OldSchoolShirts.com and tons and tons and tons of other great stuff. There's absolutely something. You can search by, by city. You can search by uh, pop culture category. It, it's, it's all there for you. And of course, we would not leave you hanging without a promo code to save you some bucks. And of course, that promo code for you is good seats. I believe it's one word. Uh, let try it as one word. I think that'll be, if it doesn't work, then try two words, but good seats. Regardless, that's the promo code and you will enjoy courtesy of us and our pal PF 10% off all of your purchases. And uh, why not buy them early and often? Why not at old school shirts.com promo code, good seats, 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, trust me, you will not be disappointed if you've, if you've been looking for an excuse to finally go there. Now's the time because there's just great stuff. There. There's new stuff all the time. And uh, we thank OldSchoolShirts.com uh, for their sponsorship, their continued sponsorship, their longtime sponsorship uh, of this show. We appreciate it to no end. Okay, let us uh, end that uh, promotional messaging, shall we, and get into our wonderful conversation with our new friend, Graham Tut. He, the author of Never Give Up, the Graham Buster Tut story. Let's talk all those different stops in the American Soccer League, in the NASL, in the uh, American Indoor Soccer Association and the National Professional Soccer League indoors. Let's talk about all of it. Here's our conversation with Graham that we had just a couple of days ago, actually. Please, as always, enjoy. When I first got uh, the... Uh, uh, the outreach from your uh, your press people for uh, for the book. Uh, I, I was frankly not. Uh, I didn't think it would sort of fit our little genre, which, as you know by now, uh, uh, is sort of oddly focused on 
uh, teams and leagues and, and events and those kinds of things that aren't around anymore for whatever reasons right. for, in the right, U.S., right. North America, and that kind of stuff. And and I I'd known peripherally as a longtime soccer fan, you know, of the world game and stuff of your story uh, prior to coming to the United States and, and the, 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 the tragic nature of it at all. But, um, but I, it wasn't until I got to your, your book's third major section that I realized, Oh my God, you're, there's a wealth of stories and yeah. teams you may want it to, who have forgotten, <laughs> but, but yeah. fit perfectly for our little, our little show here. And um, I'm you know, hoping I, you're willing to talk about some of those. These were crucial uh, I think pioneering days with teams coming and going left and right and uh, good teams, good players. You know, it was a chess game going on out there for a long time. Well, and look, we, we've talked to a lot of, uh, uh, well, we, 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 we don't uh, have any favorites here in terms of sports. We, we try to go as wide and as broad as possible, right. uh, but we certainly have a special love for the sort of the soccer ones. And it's largely because, as I found out after doing these for four years now, it's because I, my childhood uh, sports uh, hook uh, back in the day was wait for it. The New York cosmos. Right. And, and, you know, only over time do you realize just how sort of exquisite a moment in time that was, but it's your, your, you know, my childhood. And, and, and then of course the fascination with, okay, well, where did the chiefs go? They were here last year. Yeah, you know, right. what and 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 the sort of painful uh, uh i guess uh, uh story yeah. of being a fan of of the pro game in the united states is just you kind of get used to it right well um, it, it at that time when the chiefs folded it was it was really sad because we were right on the cusp of making some uh, great strides indoor soccer was averaging about 9000 indoors uh, outdoors, we were lagging, probably six and a half, seven thousand, but we played in the wrong place at the Fulton County Stadium. So we needed to play in a, a smaller facility, which we did and packed it for fifteen thousand. So it, it was the, the potential was there. Unfortunately, the ownership uh, disappeared on us. All right. Well, we'll get into that part of the story for sure, because we've had Terry Hansen on this show, who you may oh, remember from. Show, right. And 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 uh, we'll get we'll get to the chief. But let's just if you I hate to sort of condense it because the book is is great. And it tells you a lot about sort of, frankly, the whole your whole essence, frankly. Right. Which is which is made in your career in England and all of that. And I don't want to give that short shrift. But as you can imagine, our audience is really interested in sort of the what's yeah, got, yeah. How it happened in the States and stuff, but maybe for our audience, who's unfamiliar with uh, the world game, shall we say, and, or your story. And I, I think it's a little synopsis of sort of your story playing in England, your, your cup of coffee, if you will, in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then I really want to start to get into how you even discovered and why even bother coming to the United States where the future wasn't necessarily guaranteed at all. Right. Well, I heard one of our players in South Africa, Steve Wigley, he uh, came over here and played for Tampa and, and Cosmos. Absolutely. And, uh, Steve Wigley, a well-known and a, a star yeah. player in the league, for sure. Well, we played on the same team in South Africa, and uh, he was telling me a lot of good things about America and the opportunities that were out here and that there the, were the, some super players 
that were in the prime of their their seasons and uh, uh, why not come out and uh, visit and uh, I'm an Elvis fan so I wanted to see Graceland so it fit well yeah and there's also a team in Memphis for a couple years too you know I wonder if you even contemplated that or even knew about the Rogues for a couple of years yeah Memphis Rogues Kyle Rogue Jr was their top man and super guy and he, he he was the face of soccer back then, uh, in those early pioneer days. He, yes, he he, he was uh, he was the guy who went to the schools and did the clinics and led by example. Fantastic guy. We had a, a tremendous conversation with uh, with him about three years ago. He just uh, just on and on and on about just the, and pioneering, yeah. right? So and we'll get into some of that. But let let, let me all right. So your original. I guess before we sort of get to that, when you were playing in England, when you were playing in South Africa, uh, and there's a whole sort of litany of reasons and, and sort of the, the trajectory of your career, how much did you know about the pro game in the United States, if at all? Like, was this uh, Cosmos thing leaking in over there? Was this, I, I get the sense it was a very big uh, railway, shall we say, or airway to, to England, because there were a lot of players that were coming, especially from England, to yeah. the NASL. Yeah, well, as the BBC, BBC One, they did a special uh, uh, on American soccer in the NASL and the amount of great players, Johan Cruyff, Gerd Muller, Halle, of course, Franz Beckenbauer, super players that, that came, you know, came over here. So the, the foundation was, was pretty strong and attractive for uh, uh, all players to come over and make more money in this country than probably in their homeland. So at the time, it made a lot of sense. Well, there was also a bit of, of fantasy attached to it too, I think, no? Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, it's magnificent stadiums, cheerleaders we'd never experienced before. Uh, you know, we, we found that quite funny as players. And having cheerleaders at a game, but that, but once again, the game was in transition, and they didn't know whether they have cheerleaders or not. And uh, we had elephants kick off one game because the circus was in town. It was anything to entertain the kids. That was where we were at. You know, two or three uh, soccer clinics a week in the schools or youth programs in the area. Uh, that, that, that's what I think is. Uh, uh, what's happened to the MLS today? They're basking in in the early days, I think, of the pioneering NASL players. To be honest, well, all right, before we sort of dig deep into that, um, I, I, I just wonder if you had ever imagined uh, being able to sort of be in this seemingly fantastical North American soccer league when arguably the British game was was sort of in a I won't call it a fallow period, but certainly was more dour, I guess, by comparison and a bit more yeah. uh, conservative and or whatever. And they, this, the bright lights and the shininess. The and, yeah. And all that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't but, attractive I, with the thugs going crazy. But, but given your tragic uh, uh, play there in, in, uh, in, in you know, that uh, sort of really put a detour into your career. I mean, you might want to sort of for our audience who's uninitiated, kind of maybe just sort of uh, uh, yeah. speak about that part. Cause I just wonder given the severity of, of your injury and, and the prognosis, I wonder if you even imagined that you would not only get a chance to play again, but let alone in, in the, the brighter, sunnier shores of the United States. That's right. You know, and that's the title of the book, you know, never give up. And there was times 
uh, there was very dark times. Um, I got to, to go into detail. I got kicked in the face in a game at Sunderland, playing for Charlton Athletic, and damaged my eye to the extent of uh, I got permanent double vision. So I had to retrain. It was like learning to write with your with your other hand. I had to retrain myself to move my head more than my eyes and not to rely on my peripheral vision. So it took me a few years to work that out. <laughs> so I had to learn the tough way uh, here and there. Uh, um, and, and that's in the book uh, as regards um, you feel pretty lost out there when when you feel not in control of your game anymore. Because I was seeing two soccer balls come at me and sometimes I'd pick the wrong one. How do you, uh, I guess, how do you uh, mentally uh, corral yourself and then dig deep within? I mean, I would argue that not everybody has the constitution to come back from that kind of an injury and, and, and with positivity focused towards getting back to play. I mean, it's, uh, I, I can imagine uh, lesser souls uh, uh, kind of just truly uh, antagonistic to, to your title truly give up right and, and not <laughs> pursue it I, i'm just curious as to how what was within you to say look i'm gonna i'm gonna not only gonna make it back but i'm gonna also continue to go on and and, and do well and star in uh, in the game again i've got to give my mum and dad credit for that my parents you know, they went through world war Two and being bombed out of our house uh, where i was born in uh three times the the roof was blown off and you know, we we uh, we our soccer field, our Wembley as such, uh, was a was a cleared off bomb site when we were kids. So it was rough and tough stuff in the early days, and uh, you learnt how to how to jump out of a tackle sometimes because there was no referee. Well, sure, I, I, I yeah, I can only imagine. But I, was the move to South Africa really? Was it that? the English game was not sort of uh, receptive to or giving you as many chances coming back uh, and you look for another place to play or. Yeah. When you, um, when you have an injury like mine, you, you um, have a testimonial. Uh, yep. and the, the Charlton club gave me a great testimonial. It was a goalkeepers 11, all the top goalkeepers in London participated, Pat Jennings, Bob Wilson, Jimmy Rimmer, of Arsenal, uh, anyway, and it was a wonderful evening, and I got the receipts from from that game, the, the money from that game, uh, and and also they give you some insurance money, which is a bit of a joke. I think it was like seven hundred pounds, and um, uh, but that the, they paid you that way, and when you got paid out, you're not allowed to come back in the league because you, you will not be insured by the, any club. So it was unfortunate I couldn't play in England again, but I, I could. When I was in South Africa, it was pure by chance that we were on vacation, and I heard that they needed a goalkeeper in Pretoria. So uh, I called uh, the coach, and uh, his name uh, was Roy Matthews, who used to play at Charlton, who I knew, and he said to me, uh, "Come up here and." Uh, show your stuff to the head coach, Kyle Anson. So seven hours later, uh, via Durban, I picked up some soccer cleats and uh, uh, um, uh, my goalie shirt and some shorts and socks. So I thought I didn't even have the gear with me. 
And uh, I tried out that evening for uh, Arcadia Pepsi or Arcadia Shepherds later to become Arcadia Pepsi, uh, one of the best clubs in South Africa. And so uh, I was very fortunate that the first year uh, to uh, get through the season because I was trying to recover from the eye injury and experimenting uh, on how I should um, posture myself and also see the ball. Um, so I went through a frustrating period. and you, You'll get to understand that, uh, you know, regarding close one eye, try and focus with both eyes, but move your head like a Wimbledon spectator, uh, looking back and forth. Uh, that way, it was it was a trial and error, error period, and I uh, played a lot of ping pong, tennis, a, a racquetball to try and motivate the muscles of my eye that was severely bruised. Interesting. It also it sounds a little uh, hauntingly like a, a, a bit of. Um... Uh, the story of Gordon Banks a bit too, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. coming to the NASL eventually too, and 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 sort of lighten it up for a while. Uh, I vividly remember just uh, superb games uh, played by him, but but you know, overcoming a, a really again for lesser uh, mortals, right? Uh, would right, have, right. You know, very no. discouraging to the end of. In fact, uh, Gordon Banks inspired me, Tim, because uh, he was playing totally blind in one eye. Um, he went through a windshield of his car in a car wreck. And uh, that's uh, so that inspired me. If Gordon can do it, I can do it. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him um, here in Atlanta once. And uh, he's such a modest guy, such a fantastic person. You, you know, you just want every everybody to shake the man's hand and a little bit of him rubs off on you. He's a wonderful person. So when you made the jump to South Africa, I mean that's that's a it's a it's a big cultural change. Although there's obviously a, a long-standing sort of British, at least historical, uh, connection there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I what what was the league play like there? You describe it pretty vividly in your book, um, and, and not all hugely positive. Yeah, uh, well, it, they were going through a transition of um, a, a, the season before it's a white league. Uh, and then they had a black league, separate leagues. And then all of a sudden they they were kicked out of FIFA and they had a, apartheid problems. So they figured one of the quickest ways to try and get back in FIFA was to have a mixed league. So straight away they had a multiracial league and that was the season I arrived there. So we were one of the first teams to play in Soweto. And uh, that was hair racing stuff because the referee usually was leaning to one side, not ours. <laughs> so that must have been, I mean, more than something, right? I mean, I, it's it's uh, you. I I don't know. I would. I wonder. Was the move more placating and cynical, or was there nobility towards it? Obviously, apartheid was oh, very much. Uh, oh, know, I think. I think. Looking back, as players, we were John Wayne. Uh, we were crazy, uh, you know, because we put our lives on the line. Uh, in several occasions, uh, as you'll read, um, uh, there was uh, some horrendous stuff going on with fans. Uh, when their team wasn't winning, they took it pretty personal. And uh, so we were involved in a few riots. And, 
Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, but Vintook is a place that I'll never forget because there was a witch doctor that came out and danced in front of me. Uh, and that in itself, um, that was a shock. That was, that was, <laughs> that don't happen in London. <laughs> well, uh, so, uh, but it's, but interestingly, however, you're getting a chance to play at a, at a, at a relatively top level yeah. again. So that there had to be a, 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 a positive to that, right? Because you're about, you're re- rehabilitating a career um, just happens to be in a, a wild scenario and a situation to do so. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, I really felt um, this time around, it meant so much to me. Uh, it was quite an emotional trip uh, just playing in a practice game when I was trying out for Arcadia in Pretoria, uh, thinking that I haven't, I hadn't dived in seven, eight, nine months. And uh, to, to, for a goalkeeper to dive, Tim, is a wonderful feeling. We call it flying. You fly for a split second in the air. And so a lot of decisions are made, whether you catch it, punch it, push it around the post. Uh, and, and the, and, and the, the excitement of the crowd and the noise of the crowd, once you get that taste, you know, you really do miss it. And that's what was coming back to me. And it was wonderful. Well, in some respects, that has to be a gift or a gift uh, again received, right? I, I, they, yeah. I've heard, the, the goalkeepers are a special breed, right? Uh, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> different. I like to say we're different. You know, you've you got to take on a lot of responsibility and it's water off a duck's back. Don't get flustered. Keep your cool. The hotter it gets, the cooler you are. And that you've got it's a mentality to the game as well. You can't get flustered or bent out of shape. Well, it's also interesting too, I guess, in retrospect, that you're rehabilitating your career and your play and your uh, your zone, if you will, your love of the game and your your comfort with flying again. Right. Almost in perhaps a, 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 a such a. a, a uh, contentious and and uh, um, rough and tumble kind of league environment. I, in some respects, it's almost the best thing that could have happened to you in terms of kind of stepping yeah. up, right? You didn't have a choice kind of per se. Right, yeah. It, it was some rough and tumble games, but there were some really good players and some, a lot of individual players especially. Uh, there, there was quite magic. And uh, the uh, the overall level of play was was quite underrated by many until they until they got there and played themselves. All right. Well, let's set the table as to then sort of the glint in your eye of North America. Um, yeah. At what point in your uh, when you're playing? I mean, with uh, you describe again some some pretty you know uh, horrific and scary incidents. Um, right. I doubt it was one specific thing, or maybe it was. But but at what point yeah. did you kind of just become convinced that a I I can't stay here much longer in this country given. Right. Why North America? There was two instances right at the end that uh, that turned me to wanting to come to the States. And first one was when a um, screwdriver got thrown at me and it it dug in the ground about four feet, five feet from my right foot. And I thought that could have gone in my back, the back of my neck, could could have hit me anywhere. So that that was wasn't uh, uh, that was to me was a, a sign of the future. 
you know, get the heck out. And uh, then there was a, a, a stick that had been sharpened, a bamboo stick, really. And uh, it bounced off my shoulder. And that could have been nasty, a uh, jab in the arm. And uh, as I was running up the, uh, the player's entrance uh, after a game or exit after a game, so you remember those things and you go, I don't know. I, I think I want to check out the States. And a lot of South African players were coming over here and uh, playing for Tampa Bay Rowdies and Cosmos. And um old teammate of mine, Mike Flanagan, was playing for the New York, uh, uh, New England team men. And uh, so there, there was a lot of decent players playing and I wanted to be part of that again. Your original interest uh, was kind of focused on uh, Vancouver, right? The Whitecaps, was that kind of the first, that was the first sort of team that you were kind of sort of circling around, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the coach called us, and I remember him from England. He coached at Plymouth Argyle, uh, Tony Waiters. He was a great guy. Um, and uh, they was having trouble with uh, their goalkeeper. In fact, he ended up, Bruce Grobler going to Liverpool, it just left, and uh, yeah, it just, and after an a, a NASL soccer bowl title, a game that I was at, by the way, and being oh. a fan of the the oh. longest game ever, and arguably the greatest game ever played, where the Whitecaps defeated the Mighty Cosmos in the semifinals, and Fantastic. yeah, that was Vancouver really put put on the map, and, and they were really high on the hog at that point. That was the Sterling team. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought I was going to sign for them because they, had, you know, such a, a selection of players. But it was, we played on AstroTurf, and I didn't like AstroTurf to start off with. And when I was there, um, it was iced over the field, so it was difficult to practice. Uh, a guy slid into me and broke my finger. Everything about the place was not right. I just didn't feel it was a good fit for us. So Tony and I shook hands, and we said, uh, you know, good luck to you, and uh, went our separate ways. And then Columbus came in for us through a recommendation by Keith Peacock, um, my Charlton Athletic skipper. Uh, he'd been there for 20 years, Keith, as a player, and came out one season and played for the Columbus Magic with Paul Taylor, who's the head coach. And, and Keith recommended me to Paul Taylor, and uh, next thing I know, I'm flying out to uh, Columbus, Ohio. All right, so let's uh, let a, cu- a couple of questions there. So number one, I think even people of uh, the fans of uh, of today's Columbus Crew, and yes, the crew name is back. Uh, I guess after popular revolt, uh, after it almost uh, being taken away, um, I almost uh, forget that this team for a couple of years in the American Soccer League. I guess so. I guess number one, did you even know of this American Soccer League? When yeah, you- yeah, it was it was yeah, the ASL, but not the ASL, right? Yeah, it was very competitive. I mean, Rodney Marsh was coaching a team in New York, uh, New York United. Uh, Bill Williams was uh, Sacramento Gold. There were some very good coaches in the ASL, uh, decent players. And I think they were trying to rival the NASL, but they couldn't when Pelé come on the scene. Yeah, the American Soccer League, we've talked about it on a number of of levels and and conversations and stuff. Um, you know, it has a long history, you know, decades prior to, to this period of time. But as the NASL started to get uh, enormously successful, Cosmos at the lead of the pack of that, uh, right. there was this desire to sort of be 
somewhat similarly competitive. But, you know, the ASL, though, I, you know, not yeah. nearly as much media coverage, right? Certainly smaller markets. Yeah. Did you yeah. know of Columbus, Ohio as a place to, to even be? Uh, you know, yeah. you, you said you hated artificial turf. Well, oh. <laughs> you didn't improve your lot there. Well, believe it or not, it's a little bit thicker. Columbus Clippers uh, plays a thicker attitude by quarter of an inch. <laughs> but you're right. It was miserable stuff to play on. Yeah. What, what was the magic like? I, I remember them being actually one of the more standout clubs in the ASL. Yeah. They seem to be well, better supported than most clubs in the American Soccer League. And I, I just wonder what your time was like there, what the fans were like there, and, and how much of a big deal it was in Columbus. I think, frankly, most people don't recognize, I think Columbus has really, even kind of since then, really kind of become truly major league, not only in soccer, but with the hockey team and stuff. And yeah, obviously yeah. Ohio State uh, 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 college sports and stuff. Yeah, it really yeah. wasn't a professional place aside from a couple of minor league teams, including the Clippers. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think. Well, I know this for a fact. The Paul Taylor, the coach, loved for us to do community uh, appearances. So we were booked two, three appearances a week, uh, and we were doing overtime on that. And it, it showed at the gate. People started showing up you know, with your number on the back and uh, cheering for you. So taught me a lot about public relations, community relations, uh, and reaching out to kids. And uh, that's what a, a lot of the players did. And we had some great players in Columbus. It was definitely the forerunner for the crew down the road. Do you uh, remember what the ASL was like? I will get, we'll come back to the ASL because obviously yeah. you have a spell with the, to the uh, NASL in a minute, but um, I, it, it does seem to me around that time, 1979, 1980, 81, even, and obviously in the, the later years of the ASL, um, that yeah. travel was especially sort of interesting, shall we say? I mean, it seems like in Columbus and the Indy Daredevils and <laughs> New York Eagles, the New York Apollo, and, and then the Sacramento yeah. World, LA Skyhawk. I mean, it wasn't yeah. sort of geographically kind of well thought out. It seems. No, no, it was a total nightmare, and that was the downfall, I think, of the ASL and probably the NASL. Um, you got to have more regional games. Um, we 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 would go on a road trip and be gone two and a half weeks, three weeks, and play about six games. And you know, the home the home crowd forgot what you looked like. You was gone so long, <laughs> and then we'd be up for four or five games and. Off you go again for another five, six games or whatever. So it was, it was not consistent. It wasn't like football is every Sunday or Friday and Monday night football. We, we were striving to just get a, a nudge uh, uh, our, ourselves into the market. Really, we was we were walking in somewhat blind, but you know, experimenting on what was good for the fans. What were the uh, crowds like relative to the Columbus Clippers minor league baseball team? Yeah, we, we, we were, um, in fact, we had the chicken. Do you remember the chicken? The sure, crazy the San Diego team? chicken, Ted Junulis. Yes, he came to one game and uh, we filled the stadium up. It was, uh, I think it was ridiculous, Four, 14,000 and, and change. It was uh, quite surprising. And, and, uh, uh, so there, there were some good, good crowds. We had about five or 6,000 here and there. And uh, I think it was closer to playoffs, you get 9,000. 
So numbers weren't bad. They were, they were sporadic, though. That was the problem because of the league. They would say, you're playing uh, on Thursday, which was a bad night for kids, you know. It's, uh, you've got to have the weekends, and they weren't always available. And midweek games were killers. Uh, their parents didn't want to bring their kids out for that. And unfortunately, they had to learn that lesson. It didn't seem to affect your game, though, because uh, and we sort of neglected that, that you were essentially an all-star in your South African days. And you were on the ASL's uh, uh, all-star uh, ballots as well. So I, it seems like you were at least uh, in your own zone, I guess, as a player. I just I wonder the hijinks around uh, the turf and I guess ultimately the ownership of the Columbus Magic didn't last past that one season that you were there. No, they, they, uh, they, the magic disappeared overnight, uh, Tim. And it, it was sad. It was, uh, they were uh, transferring ownership. And the new owners, funny enough, were South Africans. And uh, evidently they used the excuse of the soccer team as an investment to get money out of South Africa. And then they disappeared with the money. Uh, and nobody ever found them or seen them since. So uh, there was no ownership and bills didn't get paid. And I had a knock on my door and said that the rent hadn't been paid in two months of the apartment and my car hadn't been paid for a month. And it was sad, you know, because we had a nucleus of a very good team. And we, once again, we were developing a a following. And I guess the, so the fans must've been, I don't know. I, I, I just, it seems to me that, um, you know, again, this is, again, I think of myself as a kid, right. Uh, you kind of yeah. believe in it, right. I remember, I remember a, I remember writing away to teams back when I was a kid and the Columbus magic were frankly, one of the only ASL teams that wrote me back. I got a yeah. great button that said, I think I believe in the magic uh, uh-huh. bumper stickers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they came and went, right? I mean, the year before you arrived, right? They, you were in the, the Magic yeah. were in the finals. That's correct. I mean, you're, building, you're building some kind of, you know, uh, relationship with the community and effort to to disappear all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, we hadn't even finished our season. I think we was in the semifinals. And uh, financially, we couldn't afford to go and play in the semis. So we had to forfeit the game. And that was embarrassing. It was, it was horrid. So, uh, you know, the game was in trouble uh, because everybody was trying their best, investors, overreaching with salaries and probably getting their ego too far in front of themselves uh, and not realistic with the budget. And uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. We, We had to, you know, we were trying to run before we were walking, you know. Well, yeah, and also trying to keep up with the NASL, which was itself starting to teeter towards too much and too fast and all of that. Yeah, but yeah. that said, though, you yeah. got that call, right? So so explain to me then how you take lemons out of the situation in Columbus and how do you find yourself going back to, well, to the NASL in yeah. the form of the Atlanta Chiefs? Well, fortunately, um, Bill Williams was a Sacramento gold coach and uh, in California – and I played against them a couple of times, and fortunately I had some good games against them. And he remembered me as well from South Africa. And he was being his, – his new position was assistant coach for the Atlanta Chiefs. So he recommended me to uh, – recommended Dave Chadwick, the head coach, uh, recommended uh, Chaddy 
to him and uh, and it worked out great. It worked out great. I fell in love with Atlanta and Dave Chadwick was first class and uh, never looked back. It was in the December of 1980, this is. So this this is interesting time because uh, I think most people who have followed your career and and remember the NASL remember the league and it fits and starts with this indoor soccer thing, right? Which ironically they they were the kind of semi creators of even before the MISL because there were these little hawk sock tournaments back in the early seventies and you're right and all that kind of stuff, right? But um, you didn't even. Your entree into the Atlanta Chiefs world of Ted Turner and and and, and the like was actually the indoor game before even playing a, a game outdoors, right? Yeah, I uh, I'm too big to be an indoor goalkeeper. <laughs> Six foot four, you know, you're too gangly out there, uh, uh, and I knew you'd get a lot of injuries. No, Chaddy, Dave Chadwick wanted me for the outdoor, and Lucy Offy was the indoor goalkeeper. But I played seven indoor games. And uh, one in particular will always stick out um, in Detroit. We were playing Detroit Express. And um, on the other side, uh, the Detroit Pistons, I think they're called the NBA basketball team, uh, were playing the Lakers, I believe. Um, So there was a basketball game going on one side of the arena and an indoor soccer game going on the other. And it looked like there was more fans watching our games than watching the basketball back then. So it was growing. It was certainly growing uh, in numbers. A couple of memories of that. Detroit in particular, uh, but the NBA generally was not doing very well around that time. So that certainly had something to do with it. Yeah. So yeah. when we post this episode, we'll we'll have a photo on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com as well as in our social media uh, that I vividly remember. It's one of my sort of more cherished uh, uh, visual memories of the NASL and the indoors. Uh, it, if you can imagine, uh, you may have seen this. If you haven't, I'll send it to you after after our chat. Right. Uh, the the actual uh, 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 field. I mean, you're talking about the Pontiac Silverdome, which itself is a a, a gigantic, you know, indoor outdoor facility, if you will, right? Indoor in that it's you know can house, you know, NFL football games and the like, but you're talking about partition and then there's literally like this indoor soccer kind of uh, pitch literally mm-hmm. in the midst of, you know, the bigger outdoor field, which is, it's sort of a, a, an odd sort of place in many respects, the express playing their outdoor games at Pontiac Silverdome and their indoor games at Pontiac Silverdome. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Form is just, it's just such an oddity, but yeah. you know, it was the NASL after all. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was an experience playing in that game. And uh, and then oh, a few months or a year or so later for the Georgia Generals, I played uh, for them. And the last game was against the Detroit Express. Funny enough, up front, we had so many injured players, we had to put our backup goalkeeper in. And I played up front, should have scored. Well, <laughs> it would have been revenge for a story we'll talk about in a few minutes, right? Uh, but I don't want to uh, tease it too further. Um, but uh, interestingly, though, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, in our conversation with Terry Hansen, um, he remembers that uh, Mr. Turner in particular, but um, uh, the you know just the the overall operations that the indoor game seemed to do better with the fans there in terms of attendance and 
and yeah. passion, if you will, than the outdoor game did. Uh, when did you sort of pick up on that, or were you just too eager to play come the oh, outdoor season? No, I, I, this was fairly obvious at the gates, you know, as a, and the atmosphere, of course, at the Omni, you know, uh, 9,000 can make a, a, a quite a decent noise. And we had two gates of 11,000-something and another two gates of 13,000 uh, out of, like, 15 games. So if we had more weekend games, we would have been even more successful. So I, I think they dropped the ball. Uh, and when when Ted Turner walked away from the deal, a lot of people felt, or I'm assumed, that they couldn't compete um, um, as an owner. If Ted Turner can't make it work, I can't make it work. So it, it poisoned the water for many years, I think. How was the uh, the outdoor season? Um, it was probably, by most accounts, I think, of the modern era of the Chiefs, that being that owned by Ted Turner. Yeah. Um, not only, uh, sadly, and you probably didn't, I'll ask you as to when yeah. you realized it was going to be their last season, but right. it was actually one of the best seasons on the field that you guys had had for the last couple Yeah, of we were division champions indoors yes. and division champions outdoors. Yeah. And, and that's, we've got, we're talking about Tampa Bay rallies, Fort Lauderdale strikers, and the Jacksonville team men who moved down from New England. So we were playing against Gerd Muller and, you know, wonderful players for the uh, uh, Tampa Bay team, especially Frank uh, Worthington's one of their top players. Uh, but overall, we we had a hard-working team, and I think that proved to be successful with us because we won the division championship indoors and out, outdoors. What was it like playing at uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium? It must have been cavernous on most nights. <laughs> Sometimes I felt like counting the crowd and adding adding a few more to what I counted because it was painful. It was uh, you could get when we played New York Cosmos. I think it was about thirteen thousand or thirteen thousand in a fifty five thousand seat stadium. It looks pretty diluted, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it was it was just the wrong venue. We should have played at. Uh, the Cap Memorial Stadium, which held about 14,000. That would have been ideal. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, because uh, growing up, I remember the, uh, the the WTBS Superstation back when, you know, cable was sort of in its infancy and a handful of cities would sort of pump out their programming on a sort of a nationalized basis. And the Chiefs, you know, were part a regular part of uh, the WTBS television lineup. Obviously, the Atlanta Braves were a big part of that and, and the other teams too, but it was kind of a joy to watch. I've, I've, I think arguably along with the Cosmos, probably the most professionally produced local NASL broadcasts. Yes. Um, yeah. But it yeah. was a little depressing though, to see some of these crowds, but I, I will say this, your uniforms yeah. were probably easily in the top five of all time of the NASL. Is that right? You like those? <laughs> oh yeah. The red, white, yeah. And blue and the stripe, the white, I, I thought it's fantastic. Yeah, it was all it was all American, that's for sure. And uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was a shame. There was a lot of razzmatazz going on with the game, but I think all the bones were there uh, for it to be successful. And and, and the NASL uh, they folded too quickly. Uh, I think there was five teams folded in eighty two, eighty three, and that and that was the deck of cards. Then nobody wanted to uh, be in the league. When did you know that the Chiefs were 
foundering and and sort of losing interest from the Turner ownership uh, group and more maybe generally, when did you kind of sort of see the the cracks in the NASL or, or was that a little yeah. harder to Oh, that was, that was uh, obvious really from 1981. Funny enough, it was my birthday that I got August 27th, 1981. Uh, I, that was the date that I heard the inkling that they was going to close the doors and they, which they did the next day or two. And the Atlanta journal constitution newspaper had an arrow going down it was the first time they put us on the front page, which was, which was sad. They could have helped us a bit back then. But uh, the media, you know, a lot of them was focused towards baseball, um, the Hawks and um, and the Falcons. But we were outdrawing the, the Hawks basketball team uh, and also uh, the ice hockey team, the Flames, who then went off to Calgary. Ted Turner got rid of them first in 81 and then uh, the soccer team as well. Yeah. Interesting. And also obviously this is an economic downturn in the United States as well, discretionary income and, and a lot yeah. of sort of forces that, you know, and we've gotten into a lot of that, at the NASL, but I, I get the sense though, that, and you go into it fairly deeply in the book that, um, the die was cast. I think you kind of fell in love with the Atlanta area and I kind of wanted to, stick yeah. around and, and, and set down roots regardless of whether the chiefs were going to stick around or not. Now I, I wonder, did, was yeah. that, did you kind of think that maybe that that would be maybe the end of your professional career with the dissipation yeah. of that team or, or did you well, still hope that maybe uh, else would come uh, up? I, Tim, great question, mate. I, I fell in love with Atlanta area, especially the North Georgia mountains and uh, love fishing so is um, trout fishing up there, and you know, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's God's heaven up there. I love love the area. Um, I'm I'm an outdoorsy sort of chap, and uh, so everything about this place uh, was here for me. So I wanted to get a regular job and be a regular guy. And there's no such thing as a regular job or a regular guy. I found out. Well, I guess that's got to be tough, right? Because and we've this, we've talked about this uh, with various former players of all leagues and and, and kind yeah. of sports and stuff, right? It's in many respects, it's it's when you're playing at a professional level for an extended period of time and having some level of success along the way, uh, and then it's somehow for whatever reason, either by choice or more often than not, not by your choice, it uh, goes away. Yeah. It's it's uh you know. Uh, yeah. Work and the psyche, right, just generally tends to be, you know, there's, there's pride yeah. and, and purpose there, right? But for a pro athlete, that's got to be doubly hard and a shock because you, you all you start to start to question, do you have skills and or uh, applicability right. to other things? Well, and you never really done anything else, right? Yeah, that's one of the reasons, Tim, I wrote this book, because you're taught the correct skills and you don't know it of dedication. you got to show up on time. you got to do your best. Um, you've got to be courageous. You've got to face facts. You've got to encourage people. You like to be encouraged yourself. You find a lot uh, about yourself, you know, when you when you play a pro, any sport. And I think uh, these these attributes are in us, us ex-players, but a lot of us forget um, that we've been taught these skills and uh, therefore it's a confidence issue. And, and uh, so that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, mate. I wanted them to, uh, 
understand if they've got injured through, uh, uh, if they've got uh, the comp, make a comeback through an injury, there is other options. You can do other things. Think about your dedication and uh, what you've done to, do, to be successful so far and take it again, take it another mile. All right, explain to me then the seemingly magic, no pun, uh, arrival of this Georgia Generals situation. Were you, you were doing other things, though, in the interim, right? Not, not knowing that this Generals franchise in the ASL was right. going to be starting up, right? Yeah. Well, tell us what you were doing or trying to do while, yeah. while that opportunity didn't even present itself until later. Well, it was a family time. Um, it was the end of the Chiefs' season, and the Chiefs had folded. So um, I, I decided, and I had a house I'd bought here as well in Conyers. So I decided I just wanted to go home, see my sister. And she'd gone through a, a very tough time with her husband leaving her, and she got four kids, so she needed a lot of help. So it was family time, and um, I, I focused on her. And while I was back, uh, about three, four weeks later, I got a phone call from Dave Chadwick, uh, my Chiefs coach, to say that uh, um, the Georgia Generals is, was developing and that uh, would I like to be the goalkeeper, of which I was very grateful because I was considering going to Japan and playing there or going back to South Africa or going somewhere in Europe, Austria. Oh, so wait, so you were still thinking about a couple more rounds of, of, of the pro game and leaving the area, huh? Uh, not so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I had some offers and I just didn't want to go. Yeah. Uh, and I thought this, this is where I'm happy. So I had to, uh, you know, think about how I could make money, a living uh, out of something I love. And that was soccer. Uh, um, I found out fairly quickly. A friend of mine, uh, he offered me a job at a car dealership, being a public relations car sales guy. And uh, that didn't last long. I think it was about three weeks. So I, had, I had to contact the local college and ask them if I could do soccer camps for them, for their kids in the in the area. And they accepted it. And we uh, had six, 700 kids that first summer, way back in 1983. So it was really exciting times. It, it was talk about pioneering. They couldn't spell soccer back then. Uh, I got letters of thanks from so-called executives at the college, and they spelled soccer S O C K E R. It was painful. <laughs> well, isn't that ironic, right? And and there's some great photos of you floating around uh, uh, recently with the Atlanta United uh, when they. Uh, uh, yeah. their cap to the Atlanta Chiefs uh, in memory, which frankly is is uh, a big move on their part. We don't see that completely uh, all across the MLS at all in terms of remembering the NASL because people want to forget seemingly that uh, supposed, you know, blip in soccer history, which of course we want to right uh, the wrongs of. Um, but it it uh, it's ironic, right? I mean, you got to be taken aback yeah. when you go to a game uh, today and just see sellout, well, obviously pre post pandemic, but I mean, yeah. could you have ever imagined what a Atlanta United uh, fandom looks like given the. Uh, I, I, I knew it was going to happen, to be honest, Tim. Yeah. So I don't want to sound arrogant, but uh, to be honest, I just felt that it was going to happen one day. And I just hoped that I would be alive to see it. 
because the game speaks for itself and, and there were so many kids starting to play. So we just had to be patient and let the generations take their toll and, you know, sway the game. Now there's executives who, who tune into all our games. You know, it's terrific. Well, we've had some really great conversations, especially with former uh, pro players in the United States. I, I remember distinctly, um, for example, our, our conversation with Paul Child. Uh, you had a couple of, uh, uh, I think you shared a team or two along the way, or at least some games, certainly. Yeah, um, wonderful player. But pioneering, right? I keep I hear that word over and over again, and I I think maybe at the time you just sort of, sort of realized it was just part of the part of the deal to go around and and be part of the community. And you know, it, I remember in his case, it was you know they they would play indoor games in Santa uh, in um, the Cow Palace in San Francisco, and they would they would be the ones putting the wire up before the game. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, or lining the fields or whatever it might be, right? So, right, um, right. But, but that pays off, right? It's almost like sowing seeds and and watching those flowers and and shrubbery grow eventually. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Paul Child. What a terrific guy! When I when I bought my house in Conyers, he was the first person around to help me and his wife unload the truck and help me vacuum, clean up. He, he understood what life was all about as a teammate, as well as a pro player and uh, led by example. And he was the third highest goal scorer in the league of the NASL. And I think he came over here when he was about 18 years old from Birmingham. So he got off to a great start uh, with San Jose, I believe. All right. Before we walk, walk up the Chiefs for a second, I, I, I can't, I can't pass over the, the footnote in NASL history that you were part of. I know this is probably more painful than anything in your life story, but you don't have to do this, Tim. I know I don't, but, but I, I YouTube that, you know, the internet doesn't forget these things. I, I remember vividly and I'm sorry to, to bring it up. Right. But um, there was a, 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 an amazing moment in NASL history where, yeah. um, well, you, 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 Set it up. Sorry. Go ahead. Go on. Go on. Keep well, going. All right. So this was a game. Uh, I guess it was in 1981 against. Uh, this was Jim Brown, the uh, uh, relatively, I guess you know, I, Jim Brown, I, not the Jim Brown of 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 NFL uh, fame, uh, but he was the uh, uh, Washington Diplomats goalkeeper at the time. That's correct. And I yes. guess they were, the game was at Fulton County. Yeah. Correct. Okay, uh, and I guess it was a rainy night. Shall we say? Uh, windy, very windy, windy night, okay. tornadic weather. Okay, and and this is also now back in the time when not every game was televised. That we're all sort of you know right, right. Thank God, embarrassment yeah. of riches today, right? But uh, unfortunately for you, there was somebody either with the team or somebody who was recording the game on on uh, home yeah. film or something, home video. That's right. That's right. That's so what uh, happened? What happened? Well, uh, what happened? Johan Cruyff was playing for Washington Diplomats, and just uh, before this goal was scored against me, um, uh, one of our defenders went into a sliding tackle uh, on Cruyff and basically took him out of the game. And, and he, uh, uh, there was a big groove in the in the dirt about five yards outside the eighteen yard box. So please remember that. That's the first thing. The yeah, second, in golf we call that a divot, right? A divot. It was a it was a huge divot, probably three foot long, and uh, and probably about three four inches deep. You know, it was a slide tackle, a crunch tackle, really that happened, and that was the remnants, the shrapnel uh, after uh, Don Drake hit uh, 
uh, <laughs> their star striker. Well, the uh, the next thing was the I noticed before the game the flags were blowing all over the place and usually they blow in one direction. And because it was a circular stadium, when it got really windy, the wind would whip, you know, in a circular fashion. So I thought that could be a problem, which I obviously found out. And the last excuse is we played on a a very small field. It was only 100 yards long. And we were used to 115, 120-yard fields. And uh, uh, it was like playing on a postage stamp in comparison. But so, also had the Braves' uh, baseball footprint. That didn't help either. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, um, but uh, yeah. Jim got the ball. It was just before half time, and he and he kicked it straight out of his hands. It hit this divot. Well, first of all, the wind did take it uh, about ten yards further than it would normally, and it bounced right on the divot. And to my left hand side went to. Uh, to the top corner, the top left-hand corner, of which I fell all backwards on my rear um, in shock and in embarrassment more than anything else. But that was just before half-time. So that was a tough half-time team talk with the coach. And I blamed a, a sprinkler head. And, uh, and <laughs> Dave Chadwick said, we, we don't have a sprinkler system here at Fulton County Stadium. <laughs> So uh, my excuses couldn't even hold water. Uh, but uh, uh, that was our first game for the Atlanta Chiefs. Oh, that's – yeah. That, well, but look, I mean, that, that's also sort of part of the the lore and, and the legacy and stuff. And, and you know, it is um, – you know, we don't want to sort of uh, belabor it, but, uh, you know, I, yeah. it's also a kind of a microcosm, I think, of the NASL, right? In any – if there was any league – where that, you know, kind of stuff could happen and stuff. Obviously a fluke. And you see, you see that video, right? It's obvious oh, that it's very wind-aided well, and all that, right? The fun part, Tim, I made a, a small headline back in the newspaper in London, uh, The Sun. It said, Tut, Tut, uh, former Charlton goalkeeper, gets scored against by a goalkeeper. And they, t- they showed the story. Uh, they wrote the story down. as It was a good seven inches uh, in, in the column and a photograph of me sitting on my rear and my mum had cut the cutting out and sent it to me and she wrote on the bottom I said, this means you're not coming home for a few years I take it <laughs> so yeah that's, was, it's, uh, it's always nice to know when your mom's behind <laughs> you on your side that's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was uh, that was a fun thing. I didn't mean to belabor it, but I, I'm obviously you. You mentioned it in the book. I thought it was fair game, and and obviously you 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 yeah. on it with with uh, uh, you know a, a wink and a and a, a sly sense of humor about it too. It's uh, funny, Tim. Twenty thousand people have told me that story that they were at the game, right? And there was eleven thousand people there. You know that exactly right. <laughs> um, all right, before we let you go, I can't uh, I can't let the uh, the, the uh, indoor uh, soccer part of your uh, life, but which is in some respects, even maybe still alive. Um, yeah. I, you obviously uh, uh, stayed around in the Atlanta, Georgia area. There's a, there's a great photo on your website uh, and in the book uh, of you with your uh, uh, Graham Tut soccer uh, camps uh, converted ambulance, which is just t- terrific. I mean, talk about pioneering and, and grassroots and stuff. Yeah. Um, but so tell me the story of this Atlanta attack uh, uh, indoor soccer uh, situation in the latter part of the of the eighties. Uh, this yeah. is the back of the time when 
the MISL uh, was kind of waning and this newly named National Professional Soccer League, the second sort of incarnation of that, the MPSL, which had been actually uh, previously known as the AISA, which was sort of a second tier kind of feeder league, uh, at least envisioned for the MISL. But the MPSL was really starting to actually uh, gain sort of uh, equal footing, if you will, with the MISL. Correct. Um, Maybe some of the circumstances around that, because you kind of got hooked on the idea to maybe be part of a team or maybe even bring a team into the MPSL in Atlanta. Yeah, I believe that there's a tremendous opportunity, and this is really far out in many respects and very different, but I believe um, uh, indoor soccer six aside, we can play with three men and three women on each team. And that would, I think, revolutionise the, uh, the fan support. It would embrace mum and dad and son and daughter to want to come to the games. Um, and uh, yeah, there's definitely rules to protect the females, for sure. You're not, not over-aggressive play. And you don't want to sound like, uh, you know, uh, the uh, entertaining WWF or whatever wrestling organisation. We don't want to go that route. But you know, it's just common sense of protecting, uh, no intimidation for female players, you know, tackles from behind or anything that's out of order. So the, the females are protected. That's the most important thing. And uh, with three men and three women on the, on the arena floor would be very interesting, especially when a female scores against a male goalkeeper. That would be historic in itself. Well, this clearly the quality of, of play is, uh, and the women's game in the United States arguably has done, not arguably, has done far, far better on the, the international uh, stage uh, yeah. than, than the males have, right? So I, I, so um, actually, I, I want to talk about the, uh, the Atlanta attack uh, in a minute, but, but fast forwarding to this idea, this is not um, uh, a new idea. It just hasn't sort of really taken hold. I, we, we've had conversations about uh, this approach a co-ed yes. approach for uh, volleyball the, this thing called the international volleyball association in the late 70s will change right. was part of that uh, right. and it was mixed teams world team tennis probably the uh the original sort of uh ideation of that back in the early part of the 70s where uh it would be uh, male versus male female versus female and then there would be you know uh yeah. uh integrated uh, doubles matches and, and the like. And yet they were all on the same team, both male and female. And th- there is absolutely uh, a, a opportunity for that. And I, you would think in soccer, especially too, given especially how well the, uh, the women uh, yeah. women's game is done in this country relative to that of the males. Yeah. I, well, I'm glad you see it, Tim, because I just think it's embracing the whole family. And, and well, that's what we're all about. We want to entertain uh, it, it, you've got to have entertainment. Indoor soccer does entertain. It's you know, it's thirteen, fifteen goals a game, roughly. So and bunches of saves. So it's forever. There's forever action. That's what we love about it. Well, well, tell me about the Atlanta attack in 1989, um, and then I, I want to get to your the ideas that continue to sort of. Uh, I, I really want to get more into sort of a, where this idea about perhaps this co-ed indoor thing might lead because it's interesting we're recording this literally uh, a couple of days ago uh the uh 
currently existing major league, I guess, of indoor soccer. And as I'm putting, I'm giving that charitably. It's called the Major Arena Soccer League that just announced yeah. uh, three major names uh, to their sort of senior directorial uh, board. J.P. Della Camera, a former guest on this show, Shep Messing, yeah. an indoor and outdoor soccer uh, legend. And yeah. Keith Tozer, who yeah. is a part of this story, right? Because... Yeah. He was the guy who was the first coach in Atlanta for the attack. Yeah, he, he was uh, he was the guy we first hired, uh, and he did a fantastic job. And he what was it? He went to Milwaukee from the Atlanta attack, and oh no, um, Kansas City attack. They won the championship the first year they were out outside Atlanta. So we had put a, a nucleus of a very good soccer team together. Uh, that second season, to say that one in their first first season in Kansas, so that spoke for itself. And Keith, magnificent coach, great pioneer, always always out there doing soccer clinics. So uh, I wish them well. Um, what was uh, how what was the situation uh, with the attack? I know it was uh, an interesting time for you personally as well. Um, it only lasted a season though before it went to Kansas City. What yeah. in a nutshell? I. Um, I, yeah. Was it was you're playing in the Omni? Was it a harder sell this time around? Or yeah, well, it was, it was two seasons they scraped by. You know, it, it's but it was difficult. It was really difficult, mainly because uh, USA went to war with Iraq in one of our games. It was on a on a Wednesday night. Never forget it. Um, and everybody stayed at home because they wanted to watch the TV. CNN to find out if the U.S. had declared war or not. So there was no interest in an indoor soccer match that night. Uh, I counted 52 people uh, in the stand. It was heartbreaking. But we could have done well if if the, if the signs were uh, for us instead of against us in regards. The economy was not good. Uh, going to the war obviously hurt. Um, and I think there was, uh, was a lack of marketing and promotion dollars as well. Uh, that that was uh, definitely hurting the team. You've got to compete with the Braves, the Hawks and Falcons. So you've got to spend some advertising money and do some trades. And uh, we, we unfortunately couldn't get up to that level. Well, and then the indoor game kind of, you know, uh, struggled a bit. You have to give the MPSL a credit, and then it, it changed its name later on to the MISL again, and, and yeah. kind of limped along, I would say. And I think, you know, as pro, as the outdoor game has really kind of taken off again, um, you know, Mark Cuban has got this thing called uh, Pro Futsal, which I know Keith Tozer has been involved with as well, which is, you know, without the the, the dasher boards and is a much mm-hmm. more finesse game and, and more skillful game, but you know, arguably not as exciting, I guess, as maybe the Americanized version of the indoor game. So <laughs> you're right. Exp- yeah. You you call your uh, your idea action indoor soccer. Yes. Um, how how much? Um, and I know this was sort of uh, is almost an homage to to one of your uh, colleagues and, and friends who you were part of the attack experience with. Mm-hmm. Um, how alive is that idea still? And and do you think? I guess I just like to hear your your thoughts about where the indoor game could be again, given now MLS's success. Uh, But is there room for it at a true top tier level, maybe with your format, maybe with this new injection of of top names into the MASL? I mean, can we ever get back to the days of the original major indoor soccer league when, you know, 18,000 fans were packing the checker dome in St. Louis? 
absolutely. It can happen again. Totally believe it. And it will happen again. Uh, it's just a question of time and putting egos to the side and, and getting these leagues to work together. Uh, um, I believe it's got to have 36 teams of six groups of six teams. Uh, so that way it's regionalized. So not so much traveling that, you know, is so costly. And, uh, so play regional first and then have some playoffs over a two weekend period and make, just make it short and sweet. But more importantly, uh, introduce the co-ed game. Uh, to the American public. I think um, I had an indoor soccer facility for five years and our most popular league was the Coed League. I called it the Rec League and I spelled it W-R-E-C-K, Rec League. Uh, and uh, the kids loved to watch their parents play. So it was a bit of a comedy in some respect. Um, but also we had a competitive level. We had four or five divisions. Uh, and uh, it, it proved to me that co-ed indoor soccer can survive and be successful. It's just a question, you've got to launch it with, I think, 36 teams uh, with a bang, and that way uh, uh, no nancy-pansy stuff with 12 teams or 16 teams. You've got, you got to make it worthwhile and spread across America. It's a really interesting idea. And again, the, the co-ed nature of it is, again, not necessarily a new idea, but but one that certainly has a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, from a promotional perspective, it's interesting. From a competitive perspective, it's interesting. From a uh, an equality of opportunity. I mean, Lord knows there are so many talented female athletes and, and in all sports, and, and there's not a whole lot of professional places for them to go, although that is improving quite a bit. Right. Um, so, you right. know, the NWSL only has a, a decent handful of teams, right? So, you know, it, there's there's no shortage, I think, of quality players on both sides of the ball. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it yeah. seems like a very compelling idea. I just – I wonder – uh, how and where you can – when, when do you get to take it to the next level uh, beyond right. the idea stage? <laughs> right. It's, well, it's a question now of signing up as many teams as I possibly can. And I've got six cities interested. And I, in all fairness to them, I cannot commit to them until I'm at 36 teams. So that's what I'm hanging on to. And this talk with uh, Shark Tank – if we can get these investors together, say 30, uh, 31, 32 investors from all these cities, uh, maybe Shark Tank will give us an opportunity uh, to present uh, our investors and to be an investor themselves. So Mr. Wonderful can have his picture on the front of a soccer shirt. <laughs> well, you know, I, it, it, it's interesting. Mark Cuban has been sort of linked to this pro futsal thing, which is really was announced like five years ago and nothing has happened with it. It's right. Right. Um, but it, it's also interesting too, Graham. There's, you know, there is, there's uh, even since the, your, the attack and, 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 uh, and, and since, right, there's been sort of a, a boom, if you will, a construction boom in uh, I would say smaller, indoor facilities, right? Uh, yeah. Five, 10,000 seaters that, you know, are much more appropriate, perhaps. It's almost like, I want to say soccer specific for indoor soccer, 
right? But yeah. for the minor league hockey thing and the, the smaller concert set and that kind of stuff, right? And arguably yeah. where most of the MASL now plays most of their games are sort of in the smaller, yeah. secondary-sized arenas yeah. um, with better economics, right? So it's you, you get 4,000 to a game and it's almost full versus, you know. Right, right. Well, one of the best arenas or, uh, example is the Gwinnett Arena. Yes. Uh, uh, 12 miles outside Atlanta. It holds 11,200. Perfect example. Uh, probably about 5,500 fills the bottom tier. So if you get 5,000, the place is jumping. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up with a, a pretty obvious question. I sort of hinted at it earlier. Um, uh, I, I just, I really want to hear your thoughts. Not So I, it's good. It's, it's, I'm really, it's great to hear, you know, pioneers like yourself. And I, I, I consider players in the old ASL, the old NASL, the NPSL, the AISA, the, you are all pioneers, right? Because, you know, major league soccer. Okay. 30 teams, 32 teams. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's, uh, we'll see. Right. But I mean, you yeah. have to give them credit for hanging around for so long, losing right. so much money, but soccer specific stadiums and the television. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of stuff off the backs of your guys work, right. That, yeah. you know, without that. And I just, I, I'm heartened to see an Atlanta United tipping their caps to you guys as the former Atlanta chiefs, um, there's there's not a lot of that in Major League Soccer. I mean, yeah, there's the Timbers and the Whitecaps and, and some of the old names that are sort of rehabbed and stuff, but there's a lot of blind spots with the M- with MLS in terms of remembering or embracing yeah. uh, a lot of the stuff from the old NASL or ASL, for that matter. And to me, yeah. that's kind of uh, surprising, and I just I I wonder if that ultimately is a good thing for the league going forward to not remember. Some of these are- I, I, I think they're doing the best they can. And a lot of people talk about the game back then to, to younger kids. So it gets passed down and no doubt the stories get bigger and better. But uh, the, uh, the thing is, yeah, what, what was done in the seventies was magnificent from so many. And, and of course we saw the benefit, uh, you know, especially in the last five years or so. It's, it's just been outstanding. We just like to just keep it, keep it rolling now, guys. Keep the ball rolling. All right, what do you think the future is then for the outdoor and the indoor game in this country? We're recording this the night after yeah. a, 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 just a, a breakout game for the United States national team against Mexico in this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, first yeah. of all, the U.S. congratulations. Good stuff. Yeah. The arch rivals, right? Yeah. It's now, now we've got Keep it going. It's just the game's not about one game. It's proving yourself time and time again. And uh, we've got we've gone to the dance and we've failed somewhat. Um, we can do it. Uh, and it's I think the experience now is is certainly more so now than ever. Uh, and with a bunch of young lads, great things can happen. You know, as proven with the Busby Babes back in Manchester in the 1950s, you know, you get special special groups of people and kids together, uh, things can happen. So, and it looks like they've got some magic going. Do you feel a sense of pride a bit when you go to a United game that you oh, were absolutely. all part absolutely. of that, really, that story? Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I, I often wonder, you know, how many kids uh, have gone to a soccer clinic or an old pro that's, 
uh, in the stadium. You know, uh, it's, uh, it makes you wonder or have influenced a child uh, uh, to want to play soccer and a turning point in their life. And there's a lot of good stories out there. Well, and to know that you were part of them, uh, either yeah. indirectly or even directly, perhaps with their parents and whatnot, that's got to be something special. Well, you like to think that, Tim. You like to think that. It's, uh, it was a special time. Was a, you, had to be, uh, you had to be a pioneer. You had to be brave and just had to keep going and believe in, in the game. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's arrived, that's for sure. There it is. A nicer guy you will not find. Uh, Mr. Tut is. uh, And uh, a book that is uh, wonderful to read. Uh, It has its uh, moments of tragedy, but certainly it's uh, uplifting uh, stories uh, from that point onward. Uh, I think our American fans in particular uh, will enjoy the uh, third section of the book where uh, Graham goes into all of those uh, American exploits and then some. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful read. Uh, the book again is called "Never Give Up: The Graham Buster Tut Story," uh, and uh, it is available depending on when you're listening to this, either in pre-order fashion. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, as we drop this in mid-June, I believe the book uh, firmly and finally comes out uh, uh, in earnest uh, in the middle of July. Although that might creep up a little bit. Uh, If you're listening to this show after the 15th, say, of July, uh, it's available now. And what the hell are you waiting for? Regardless, either way, go uh, early and often to your favorite bookseller online or otherwise and get yourself a copy. We, of course, love you to uh, go to our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and search up this episode with Graham Tut and uh, find the convenient link to our pals at Amazon to get your either pre-order or current order. Uh, and give us a few shekels of love by doing so. We appreciate that. Uh, and let's see, if you'd like to uh, uh, see some great photos from uh, from the book and from the collection of Graham Tut's, uh, you can go to his website. It's GrahamBusterTut.com. Yes, I'll spell it for you. Graham is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M. Buster, B-U-S-T-E-R, Tut, T-U-T-T. GrahamBusterTut.com. And uh, great, great uh, photos there. Uh, some never before seen uh, by yours truly, who considers himself a uh, an NASL, an American Soccer League, an indoor soccer league uh, sleuth. And uh, some great contributions to the uh, the interwebs uh, there uh, on that uh, that site as well. Uh, let's see. Our uh, thanks not only to Graham, but to you, the fine listener, as well as uh, our pal Jerry Payne, who uh, each and every week crafts this uh, assemblage of pieces that we give to him each week and uh, makes uh, some semblance of an episode. And we appreciate his efforts. Of course, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. And let's see, you want to follow us on social media? Please do so. We're uh, at on Twitter at uh, Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on uh, Facebook as well at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, our website, of course, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. There you will find links and uh and all kinds of other gadgetry for all of our uh, episodes, both to date as well as to come. Uh, If uh, you want to introduce a friend of yours uh, to the show without them having to fully subscribe on their favorite podcast uh, app, uh, that's a good place to go. It can kind of sample the wares and see the uh, imagery there and uh, 
kind of sample, a little poo-poo platter, if you will, uh, of all of our 200 and whatever episodes. Uh, and hopefully they'll get hooked just like uh, yourself. Uh, let's see. Uh, email, of course, you can send us email at uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Would you like to, uh, in addition, get our uh, weekly email newsletter? Well, by all means, go to our website, search uh, up, uh, I don't know what what tab it's on, I should remember it by now, but uh, you'll find it there, and just your name and your email address, and boom, you will be on the list for that uh, as well. I uh, can't think of anything else, but I do appreciate your listening this far, thus far, he says. And uh, I hope you have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week uh, with God knows what. Uh, but uh, appreciate it to no end. And uh, take care of yourselves, everybody. Stay safe and enjoy the beginnings of summer. All right. See you. Bye. Bye.